0: You're listening to the Sill Podcast Perspectives on Art and Technology with Peter Noce and Harry Posner. Episode 15 Accepting the Other Does Race Matter?
1: Today we're going to be talking a little bit about the whole idea of racism. And I thought I'd start this off with a quote I found by an American poet and author, uh, Scott Woods. And here's what he says about racism. It's very interesting. He says, the problem is that white people see racism as conscious hate when racism is bigger than that. Racism is a complex system of social and political levers and pulleys set up generations ago to continue working on the behalf of whites at other people's expense, whether whites know, like it, or not. Racism is an insidious cultural disease. It is so insidious that it doesn't care if you are a white person who likes black people. It's still going to find a way to infect how you deal with people who don't look like you. Yes, racism looks like hate, but hate is just one manifestation. Privilege is another. Access is another. Ignorance is another. Apathy is another. And so on. So while I agree with people who say no one is born racist, it remains a powerful system that we are immediately born into. It's like being born into air. You take it in as soon as you breathe. It's not a cold that you can get over. There is no anti racist certification class. It's a set of socio economic traps and cultural values that are fired up every time we interact with the world. It is a thing you have to keep scooping out of the boat of your life to keep from drowning in it. I know it's hard work, but it's the price you pay for owning everything. So I thought that was a very interesting quote that mm-hmm. we could maybe just start with, which kind of points at the complexity of this issue, of this reality. What's your take on racism generally, Peter? Do you feel
0: it's as prevalent as this quote suggests it is? It's around you all the time. By its very nature, it's discriminating in that it distinguishes in some ways uh, membership in a particular group or race from another. So there's a distinguishing mark. So that in itself, if you go to the definition of the word discrimination, Mm -hmm. that is discriminating. It, It is differentiating. Mm -hmm. There was a point you made about it being a classification system, uh, which is used to categorize humans into large, distinct populations based on how they look, uh, their ethnicity, cultural and other factors. There is that discrimination built into that definition. So if I hear you correctly, you're saying the
1: discrimination has to do with classifying groups of people in certain ways.
0: Yes, but we give discrimination a negative definition, do Mm -hmm. we not? What's the positive definition? Well, the word discriminate, is it really totally negative or is it differentiating things? Is it an attack on someone?
1: Well, that's a good question. If I put an Italian and I put that Italian beside a Jamaican, beside a cosmopolitan Russian businessman, let's say... Mm -hmm. We're going to see three distinctly different worldviews in a way, three distinct ways of being in the world that have their own unique characteristics.
0: So maybe we approach it from another angle. Maybe we go from a point of what race is not rather than what it is. How do you mean? Well, race isn't a religion. Right. It isn't a nationality. It isn't a social club. Right. So you can't really opt into or out of a race. That's right. But we found many ways to skirt the issue, for example, by changing one's name, hair, or the look of their body or body features. hmm hmm Race is a factor in one's identity. It provides a basis for recognition, belonging, and reference.
1: Right, it's genetics, basically.
0: Yes, yes.
1: I mean, the point is that going back, back, back genetically We weren't as distinct as we are now in terms of the various groupings out there. We were more cut from the same genetic cloth, if you like, and then elaborated out through evolution, became different and more unique in terms of the various groups that are out there, genetically speaking.
0: Right. There's an identity associated
1: with race. So basically what you're saying, if I hear you, is that racism comes from a kind of deep over-identification with your own genetic roots, Mm -hmm. right, to to the exclusion of others or to the point where you look at anyone who is not in that group as being perhaps less trustworthy or more dangerous or suspect in some way.
0: Yeah, well, race doesn't really make any references to measures like where you live or how much money you have or don't have or Mm -hmm. what you're worth as an individual in any environment. Right. So circumstances arise attributing race to these factors. They kind of come forth as a function of attitudes, biases, history, preferences. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of meandering a little bit here, but I'm looking for a, a point of discussion.
1: Well, have you found yourself, for example, having racist thoughts? Have you caught yourself kind of being racist at certain times in your life? I know I have.
0: Yeah, I try hard not to, but I probably have. Uh, I mean, nothing comes to my mind immediately. But I do think of, for example, associations. A good example is like what you see on the news that you hear about all the time, especially in the U.S. where You hear this more often than here, but where there is a stereotyping of an individual. So, for example, a young black man comes out with a parka and a hood over his head. Right. He automatically gets questioned, or arrested, or gets accosted in a way that others don't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a profiling,
1: right? But on the other hand, he's profiling himself by wearing the fashion of the group that he is associated with. In a way, H- that's true, right? He's saying, "This is me. I'm from this group, and proud of it. And I'm different from you, white boy." By virtue of how I walk, how I talk, how I dress. Going back again to that identification, that over identification with one's roots can lead to racism, actually results in racism in a way. It's not even one group's fault. It's all of our faults for being so identified in our culture, in our family, in our genetics.
0: Right, for, that leads for to it. being so responsive to those cues, you mean? Yeah. How do you get
1: beyond the identification with your own tribe, so to speak?
0: There is a piece of information that suggests there's a, a neural circuitry that's involved in a person's initial categorization of another. Mm-hmm. There's actually research oh. that attention to race occurs within 120 milliseconds after you see a person. Yeah. However, it's when certain beliefs, attitudes, opinions, assumptions, and biased conclusions about race are assigned to that perception that they evoke discriminatory responses, stereotypes that we were talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah. maybe this is partly why race seems to matter in virtually everything we do. Well, it
1: matters when one group or more groups are kind of held back in some way, whether it's in education, in job opportunities that sort of thing, or in the way they're treated by the authorities. Let's bring technology into this. The Rodney King video that sparked riots in the streets of America, that was something that was directly attributable to the fact of uh, technology being everywhere now and video technology being everywhere now. I didn't realize the extent of that discrimination from the point of view of the police until I saw that, Mm -hmm. video and others like it since, where I'm thinking to myself, yes, you can see that there's definitely an issue there. It's real. It's not being made up. That the video helped us really see the truth of it. Right?
0: Mm -hmm. You're Jewish? Yeah. How did you experience
1: it? Dirty Jew. Get the dirty Jew. And uh, yes, I had to deal with that when I was younger, not in my adult years. But my parents, um, bless their hearts, were racists in, as well. If a black man walked down the street, my mother might lean over to me and point at him and say, Schwarze, a black man, black, Schwarze. And you could tell in her voice that she was a bit nervous, hmm. that she had the, that same sense
0: of worry in discriminating Right. Uh, And you just made me think of something, uh, how much of an influence your upbringing is on the way you approach racism.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, you have to be practical, too. I'm not going to go to Mexico anytime soon. Okay. Not because I think Mexicans are bad people, but the reality is that violence down there and the drug cartels and all of that Mm -hmm. make that culture a bit toxic for a lot of people like myself. So I'm not being racist there. I'm just looking at the situation there and saying that is a dangerous culture to go into right now. I'm not about to go there. Other people aren't as afraid as I am (laughs) of going there, and they go to Mexico quite often. But
0: You You have a reluctance. You have concerns.
1: Yeah, and that doesn't mean I'm racist. If I point out that Italians talk with their hands a lot, Mm -hmm. that doesn't make me a racist. It makes me observant of that culture and the way people communicate.
0: Yes, and I I understand what you're saying about the other things too, because, uh, you know, you referred to Mexico. Well, I happen to be born in southern Italy in a place called Calabria, which is Next to Sicily, they're almost on an equal base.
1: Oh, so Uh, you must be part of the mafia then.
0: Well, yeah. you know, I got that all the time (laughs) growing up. Because uh, for those that don't know, Calabria is really virtually on par with Sicily in terms of the domination. The strongest components of the mafia are typically located in those two Italian provinces. Sicily being an island and Calabria being on the mainland. So I did hear that growing up. Sometimes you could also use it to your advantage to people who were not so well-versed in, mm. in world history and <laughs> that such an infinitesimal percentage of the Italian population in those areas is part of the mafia. Right. Uh, that, you know, sometimes all you'd have to do is just say, uh, my Uncle Louis will take care of it. <laughs> <laughs> if you had anybody pestering yeah.
1: you. <laughs> Did you ever get discriminated as a kid being Italian? Or were you always in Italian areas and where you lived, etc.?
0: I can't ever remember being discriminated against. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. I don't remember being, um, I don't remember any vocal expressions to my face or anyone denigrating me as a so-called WAP or uh, mm. any of that. But I, think, but I think the Italian culture here, especially in the 50s and 60s, when most of us or many of us immigrated, we kind of um, softened that racism part by contributing to the community in other ways. So it balanced that out. We, we may have been picked on more if we'd been living in New York City in the 1920s or 30s. Yeah, uh, yeah. But being in Canada and in Toronto in the 50s and 60s, we contributed so much to the building of mm-hmm. the city that we kind of uh, got a free pass.
1: Yeah. And don't forget, too, that the city that you moved into, your parents came to, and mine, too, moved us into White bread culture, 1950s Toronto, very white bread, Hogtown, mm-hmm. very few people of color. Mm-hmm. And then as time has gone on, of course, more and more immigrants from different parts of the world have found Canada and the United States and have gone there for various reasons, whether it's persecution or better opportunities for their family, whatever. Mm-hmm. But we had this influx, this huge influx of immigrants. And down in the U.S., I believe it's called the Great Melting Pot, and up in Canada, we call it a cultural mosaic. Those are the terms we use for this influx of immigration. And it just seemed to me that these terms are incorrect because your family moved here and you end up in an Italian neighborhood. Right. My family moves here. I end up in a Jewish neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And all the way down the line, Puerto Ricans in the U.S. move to Puerto Rican neighborhoods Jamaicans into Jamaican neighborhoods. And so rather than it being a melting pot or a mosaic, all of a sudden it just becomes these enclaves of people who are trying to keep their home culture
0: burning. Not as integrated as everybody would like to think.
1: Exactly. There are people who come to this country who still don't speak English after 20 years here, say, mm-hmm. because they're, they're hanging out in areas where you don't need to speak English.
0: Although we were immigrants, we were still Caucasian. We had to deal with one level of racism. Right. We were still kind of accepted. And especially being European, given that the original settlers here were European, it wasn't that big of a stretch. Plus... You had cultures that not only shared a Caucasian background, but the religious differences were more, for lack of a better term, palatable. Mm-hmm. Uh, the extremes weren't there. You were Protestant, you were Catholic, but still a, a Christianity-based uh, religion. So you didn't really feel the full brunt of everything. Yeah, I mean, our discussion here really isn't about racism
1: against you or I or our families, particularly, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Really, the discussion, I think, is about really whether the racial enclaves that I mentioned a few moments ago are actually beneficial or not. Because on the one hand, you could say, yes, all of these various races and cultures should merge together and intermarry and etc. But the fear that people have is that they'll lose their cultural identity from where they came from.
0: The majority of the problem lies in the adult part of the culture. If you put children together when they're toddlers or or they're just playing together, they don't differentiate at all. That's right. They don't know color from race. All they know is behavior and whether they like you or not. (laughs) Yeah, so I think, in a way, what you're
1: saying runs counter to this quote I said at the very beginning, that it's not the very air we breathe. It really is how we're educated, how we're brought up in school, in our families, what our attitude is towards the other, towards other cultures, towards other
0: people. I think so. My own experience would suggest that because I know that part of my openness when it comes to these things, I know now A lot of it came from my parents, directly or indirectly. Of course, I built on it because it would have been more difficult for them to have been as open-minded as I'm trying to be. Yeah. Because I've had the benefit also of living in this culture and having an education and having a very good comprehension of the language because a lot of the problems that exist, even with racism, is that when you have an accumulation or an amalgamation of all these various peoples and societies and ways of living, the English barrier creates another problem. If you're not fluent, if you're not able to access information and to learn and to adjust, you'll always be, if nothing else, intimidated. Yeah. And when you're intimidated, you're going to defend your position much more stoically.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point, is that people are allowed to immigrate to this country and other English-speaking countries without really having enough of a grasp of the language to get along. And that immediately sets up barriers to communication with your new culture and with the people there. Yes,
0: and I, I also think there were other things. that When I think back, I came here in 1958. My father came before us in 1957. But when I think of that time frame, basically from the late 50s to the mid-60s, the situation seemed to be different in that when you came into this country there were certain prerequisites that couldn't be avoided and you had to have a job or you had to have placement for work you had to have someone here that would uh, sponsor you it may not have been but it seemed more difficult to get in
1: yeah i think a lot of those things are still in place it may seem like it's a bit looser now because the doors are are much wider you know welcoming more
0: people from all over the world I think being Caucasian kind of leveled the playing field a little bit. You could have been German, you could have been Italian, you could have been French, you could have been many things. Yeah, You were different cultures, but you were still Caucasian.
1: Right. Let me ask you a question then. Should governments of various countries have the right to limit which cultures, which peoples can immigrate to their nation, depending upon the characteristics that we kind of agree upon in terms of various people. See, what happens is, how can I put this? We expect governments to ignore the way people live in the countries that people are coming from.
0: Mm-hmm. You know?
1: So if you're coming from a, a a nation that is laid back, it's a tropical nation, people just move more slowly, they have a different kind of work ethic, etc., a different kind of attitude towards life. Maybe Your country is not the best place for those people in terms of a nation that you need, where you need people who are more industrious, more go-getters. Maybe you want less of those kinds of people in your country. Do you have a right or should you have a right as a nation to limit the kinds of people who come to your country based upon the needs of your country?
0: That's a great question. And one that uh, now that I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm pondering as you're speaking, and I can see the complexity of it. And yet, I go back to ideas that I had when I was very young, or when these subjects were being discussed, you know, at a very rudimentary level, obviously. I used to use this analogy, the speed on the highway, the maximum limit, let's say, is 100k. Now, there's 20 of us that are about to get onto this highway, and we've all got different colored cars and different makes, but the rule is 100K. That's, that's the governance. The governance is the speed limit. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if you could apply such a simplistic approach to... No. Okay, but wait, anyway, let me just stop you there, all right?
1: So let's say a certain percentage of those cars and those drivers are very, very cautious on the road, so cautious that they'll go 40 kilometers per hour in a 100-kilometer zone, making it dangerous for the drivers who are going the normal speed. Don't you have a right, as the operators of that road, to say, I think we will not welcome those people onto the road? Oh,
0: absolutely. I mean, the speed limit, when I said 100K, what I meant by it was it tops at 115, and you can go 95 or 90, but you can't do 60. Right. So So, don't you have the right as a nation to say
1: we don't welcome peoples from these areas because they tend to drive way too slow? Well, but
0: that's a generalization. You're encompassing an entire race or nation into that rule. My position would probably be let's uh, give them a shot. And I'm sorry, you can't because it's not about you being Turkish or Armenian or Russian or Jamaican. You're not abiding by the rule. So you can't actually paint the
1: individual with the culture they come from and make assumptions and
0: then make decisions based upon that. That's what you're saying. I don't think so. I don't think you can say all Chinese drivers are bad drivers. I don't think you can make these broad assumptions, even if you have a lot of examples. Mm -hmm. Because I know myself within my own culture, I don't like a lot of my own people. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mean that I hate them but it's not something that I aspire to. Yeah, and then what you're saying,
1: and I think is true, we don't acknowledge it a lot, but a lot of racism comes from within the
0: races. Absolutely. A lot of uh,
1: black people are really good racists and a lot of white people are great racists in terms of aspects of white culture.
0: Yeah. You know? yeah, all the other 14 podcasts, at some point in the podcast, I always mention this. And it's the same thing here again. Education, education. Inform people, behave differently the SIL podcast perspectives on art and technology is a connecting dots media production available at connectingdotsmedia.com